Welcome to the Edge Dwellers Cafe, an interview-based podcast featuring conversations at the convergence of politics, environment and mental health in a world on edge. My name is Ben Habib and I'm an international relations scholar, an environmentalist, permaculture practitioner and neurodivergent coffee drinker. Join me in my quest to explore the edges that define us, divide us and shape how we interact with each other as we grapple with the extraordinary changes taking place across our world. Order a hot beverage and get comfortable. This is the Edge Dwellers Cafe. We're living through a time of world historical significance. A period of breakdown where long-term trends of widespread economic inequality and precarity and eroding trust in institutions are accelerating under the strain of the COVID pandemic. The ripple effects of this breakdown are reverberating through politics around the world with the emergence of different strands of populism, both on the right and on the left. I'm joined by Dr. Raul Sanchez Uribari, Senior Lecturer in Crime, Justice and Legal Studies at La Trobe University in Melbourne. Raoul's research focuses on democracy, rule of law and comparative judicial studies, with an emphasis on Latin America and his home country of Venezuela. He's also spent time living and working in the United States and is a keen observer of US politics. In this discussion, Raoul and I explore populist politics in Venezuela and the United States, and muse on what that might portend for politics here in Australia. We get into Venezuela as a petrostate and discuss the environmental vulnerabilities of the Caribbean in the context of hurricanes Ida and Katrina. We also reflect on Raoul's experiences leading undergraduate students on study tours to the United States, as well as the challenges of teaching during the COVID pandemic. Before I join Raoul in this conversation, you can support the production of this podcast by making a one-off monetary contribution of any amount via PayPal, or by becoming an Edge Dwellers Cafe subscriber on Patreon, where you get access to bonus material and a monthly live online session with me. See the show notes for details. Now, let's get to my conversation with Raul Sanchez Uribari. Edge Dwellers Cafe. Raul Sanchez Uribari, welcome to Edge Dwellers Cafe. Thank you so much, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. We seem to be in this transition period in around the world where a lot of the old norms and institutions and power relationships are really in flux. It really seems like this is an inflection point of sort of global historic proportions. And there seems to be things popping off all around the world protest movements, resistances to government, uh, institutions breaking down, and, and trust in institutions really eroding, particularly across democratic states. And populisms of various kinds seem to be part of this story. You have a research project on populisms. Can you speak to that and maybe talk about where this research sits in the historic moment that we're in right now? Uh, ben, thank you so much for opening up what I think is going to be a uh, multifaceted conversation, let's put it that way. And as, as you said, the changes that are taking place across the world, um, it's really, you know, sometimes it's really hard to just step back 
and see all of these changes happening at the same time as part of a bigger picture, as part of a broader story that is that is unfolding. And that that's one side of the probably of the challenge of our conversation today: how to connect the dots between these different between these different processes and what and that would speak directly to what a, what an edge dweller is about, right? So that's that's one thing. And and second, of course, the issue of to what degree and what is our role while the uh, wheels of history keep going on and cracking. I remember once talking to a dear and an admired colleague and, and friend from Poland, who one day I was telling him, he caught me right at the peak of the recent Venezuelan crisis a couple of years ago, and at the moment of greatest despair in terms of how things were unfolding there. Uh, and, I, and I was telling him, look, I mean, I, I don't really know what else we can do and, and being so afar. And, and then he looked at me and said, you need to understand that whatever happens and how it goes, you're one individual as the wheels of history keep turning. And when you are living in direct contact with these huge processes, you need to keep that in perspective because otherwise you get lost in the midst of these big changes uh, happening. And taking it from someone who hailed from Poland and was the son of a Polish refugee in Australia, I really took that advice seriously and thought, well, in perspective, these are all these changes happening. But at the same time, it's good to keep a perspective of, of history, right? And God, in the past century or so, how many changes have happened in such an abrupt way? We're still in the process of catching up with them. And it is against that background that I want to, to think not only about populism, but also about the other interests that have been developing as an academic or an, and as an individual over the course of time. Now, coming back to, you, know, you asked me in particular about my, my interest in populism, it goes back to that. So on one hand, to see the, the wheels of history turning, and in particular, back in the day when I was in Venezuela and, and living as a Venezuelan citizen, um, having been born and raised there in a particular cultural, social, political context in a, in a country that was on the verge of experiencing a dramatic transformation that I was living through but not understanding, well, making sense of what that process, that revolutionary process meant to me or meant to the country on one hand, but also how I was positioned within it. And of course, in this story, um, the rise of Hugo Chavez to power and the subsequent unfolding of the Bolivarian Revolution, I think uh, is the, is, was the, the key and the core of my, of my experience and everything that surrounded it. The, the collapse of uh, civic order as we knew it, the dramatic increase of, of violence in not only uh, violent crime, but uh, pervasive presence of violence in, in, in social relations, um, more broadly speaking, and how that undermined political institutions and eroded, or in connection to it, trust with these institutions and with each other uh, eroded. So it was out of a, not only a fascination, but, a, but perhaps a, a, a need, a necessity, that I became interested in, in these different topics. But in what I eventually began looking at from the point of view of populism, but which could also be seen from other perspectives as 
uh, collapse or crisis of the of the rule of law and the question of legitimacy and the rationale, the normative dimensions of regime change and the tension between power legitimacy and, and social inclusion in contemporary democracies and several other related topics. I hope that gives a, a kind of an overall explanation to why I'm fascinated by populism as a topic, but also by other topics that we will discuss today. Are you seeing any parallels between the time when Chavez came to power in the 1990s and this moment now? There seem to be two rupture points. Are there any similarities or, or any differences that are important to flesh out here? I mean, if we're referring, for example, to, to sudden processes of change, right, and, and to sudden processes of change taking place at a, at a global scale, to some degree, yes and no. I think the, on one hand, yes, in the sense of, of how sudden it is and also how vast swaths of society have trouble processing and grappling with these changes, uh, how political leadership is resistant to change and ends up becoming part of the, of the problem as opposed to be participants in a process of, of reform that might allow for, a dif- for different outcomes. Uh, I think that premise applies to many things, right? Applies to climate change, applies to long-standing social historical grievances by minorities across liberal democracies and so forth. So yeah, so on one hand, I think that there is a parallel between the two. The part that is perhaps less less similar or, or different, the part that is different is that this political order that we're talking about and the the sort of the institutional political order and its underspinnings at a global scale, but also in each one of the liberal democracies have, I feel, a much stronger institutional core than Venezuela did, for example, as a a state back in the 1990s. Back then, the fact that liberal democracy of the day wasn't entirely feeble, as it's been portrayed later on, and there were um, many aspects of it that had strong roots in social and political routines that people embrace over the course of democracy. I mean, to, still to today, Venezuelans still see voting and, and the electoral system as the main pillar of a, or the ideal uh, source of legitimacy in a political sense. But anyway, putting that aside, yes, there were th- those institutions for better or worse were not as strong and and that's and and that was part of the problem later on so i guess with chavez you've got someone who's a charismatic leader who chavez the person is leaving a really big imprint on the institutions of the state so talk about how the government of chavez actually worked as a system and then once we had the changeover to Maduro, how did that system start to decay without the charismatic leadership of Chavez? That, that, that's a great question, Ben. The, with respect to, to the specific question of, of Chavismo and, and Hugo Chavez as a leader, uh, he, he, he incarnates. He, he's an uh, emblem of contemporary versions of, of populism, of left-wing populism. But in the context of a society as unequal, and where not only money, but opportunities and resources were so fairly distributed in, in Venezuela, as Venezuela was and, and still is. The arrival of, of Hugo Chavez's promise to redress grievances that had emerged in, in that sense, in a, in a sort of way, 
created a huge impact in Venezuelan political life. And ever since, there was a duality that, again, I, I was able to start sort of looking into from the point of view of populism as a, as a concept, but which intuitively was well depicted, for example, by um, Garcia Marquez in, a, in an article that he published very quickly on an op-ed, just, I think, not a few weeks or, or so after Chavez came into power, after Chavez was elected and, and came into power, where I think it was called the enigma of the two Chavez's. And he said, here I had spent time with a man who on one hand in, it represented and understood the potential power of transformation that existed in a movement that had such widespread support among the, support among the population. And if what he will drive will reflect that power, well, and, and that desire, that kind of source of legitimacy. He didn't use those words, but I'm just paraphrasing. Well, this is actually something to be watched, monitor and seen, because it would be it would be transformative not only for Venezuela, but but even beyond. But on the other hand, he, he said, I also see a military man. I also see a man who believes in chains of command, who has a vertical vision of society. Again, he didn't put it exactly in those words, but he was kind of spoke to, well, I know very well what the tradition of militarism had had brought to Latin America historically and what that means even recently for other countries. And I'm wary. And years later, I understood that as the tensions also between top-down and bottom-up populism that we see in the literature nowadays. Where, and, and I tell you, when I came into the literature on populism, I mainly looked at the and the so-called pathologies that emerged out of, out of populist processes, precisely as a result of how overwhelming also the dimension of abuse became over time. And this will lead me to talk about Maduro in a, in a few minutes. But that's, that's one thing. But then gradually, I reconnected with that premise that Garcia Marquez is referring to. Well, a lot of these processes have popular legitimacy and, and represent normatively this desirable and tenable propositions of change and uh, rooted in social justice or, or other goals. But I think it's, it's making sense of that tension that it's perhaps the most interesting and, pro interesting and productive angle for understanding the Bolivarian revolution and also for understanding other populist movements. Now, just quickly, you asked me about, about Maduro. And in the case of Maduro, there are two things going on. On one hand, you still see some of the traits of the kind of the populist architecture of power routines and, and aesthetics and institutional functioning, the same kind of some of the key problems that had already been seen with Chavismo as Chavismo developed, the over-concentration of power in the president, and certainly the, the open, the demise of democratic legitimacy as a source for the project, and the then legitimacy being anchored more exclusively on we need to defend the project at whatever expense, and that is what I'm doing as your leader. Well, in that case, you're already falling into authoritarian rhetoric and authoritarian logics, whatever way we want to justify it. So scholars are divided in terms of observing these populist traits, but also looking at what they refer to as, as, as a post-populist moment. So how do nation states, what happens in the aftermath 
in, in depending on the on the scale of the transformation that has taken place. That is certainly less studied. I would say that populism itself or what causes populism, but it's a phenomenal, interesting topic in, in on itself, right? And historically, there are many interesting examples, Perón in Argentina, Huey Long in Louisiana, you name it. I mean, it's, it's, it's just yeah, an amazing topic to, to look into. If the populist moment is going to be the story of the 2020s, which it looks like the trajectory uh, across a lot of countries around the world, then that post-populist moment is going to be the story of the 2030s, perhaps. And what happens after this? these populist projects burn themselves out and old orders you know, have ground to a halt and something new has to rise up uh, in its place from the rubble? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and even beyond, since that populist moment has, has ended up taking place in the biggest democracies of the West and the most influential, their effect even even reverberates in in countries that are not necessarily embracing uh, populist logics as as the sort of the most distinctive feature of their political life, uh, but which are still affected. And we've seen it here. (laughs) We've seen it here and we've seen it in many other places. Yeah, this is probably a good place to talk about what we've seen in the United States, because that seems to be the most extreme example. Uh, in the West, but but also what's been happening in Australia with the the rise of populism here. So, what are some of the the lessons or the patterns that you're noticing in the US and also in Australia? I'm glad you're asking because in the case, for example, of the of the US, as we know, again, I saw the the Trump period and Trump himself as a problem in itself and, and quite concerning and worrying. And you probably remember that from the very beginning, that was my position. And it's like, this is, this is not gonna be good for the, for, for the United States for a number of reasons and hence for, for the world. But on the other, because of how influential America is in contemporary, uh, in contemporary politics. But on the other hand, I mean, that's, that, that was uh, one thing. On the other hand, uh, well, again, we come back to the legitimacy of the grievances, right? I mean, there were many reasons that were pointing in the direction of the possibility of major political upheaval. And that had already been unfolding in terms of civil of civic strife associated with longstanding demands. On one hand, more in, in terms of protests, more visibly from the left, but we know at the same time that patterns of resistance to change, illegitimate, had already appeared on the right. And that ended up being captured, co-opted and captured by Trumpism and even legitimized through uh, racist tropes, through nationalist tropes, and, and so forth. And of course, it's a, it's a moment where politics in terms of determining who gets what, when, and how, it no longer happens through the cajoling of, mutual, of the mutual recognition of different demands and articulating well what can come from there in terms of mutual coexistence, but rather an assumption that I can trump you and I can essentially uh, go ahead with whatever position I have and and you need to accommodate in return. Uh, And I don't think that that agonistic logic is yet gone in the United States. It's still the main way in which uh, politics is being done. And not only there, we've seen that level of polarization and strife emerging in many other places across the world. And that's, that in on itself is a, is a major threat for democracy as we know it. 
and it's of course a recipe for further violence down the road. I am still, despite the despite the positive fact that Trump wasn't reelected. Well, number one, what did it take for him not to get reelected, and everything that happened? Uh, but second, we know that the U.S. in that sense, unfortunately, doesn't seem to be out of the woods. Quite the opposite. Um, many of the problems, but on one hand, in the Republican Party, Trumpism was there to, to stay. But more than that, many of the discur- discursive elements of Trumpism ended up finding its way into normal political life in America and even beyond. And that comes back to, this, to its echo, even, in, even here in Australia. Yeah, one of the outcomes of the, the Trump moment seems to be a real dissolution of the idea of a loyal opposition, which is key to democratic governance and peaceful transfer of power through the electoral process. If you don't have the loyal opposition who's going to respect the results of an electoral process, that means the electoral process doesn't have legitimacy and doesn't work. And so how do you resolve grievances? How do you do politics when that mechanism of compromise then what are you left with? Exactly. And the, and the erosion of a common basis of understanding. I mean, ye- yesterday, for example, I, we had a, I was having a conversation with a friend who's looking into questions of, of court packing. So processes of, of you know, reconfiguring courts on political basis. And he, and, and he was talking about, the, about on what conditions court packing is actually normatively desirable and a, and a solution. And, and as we were talking about what would be the requirements, I was saying, well, the problem here is that each party will actually find a way of saying that this is that all these boxes are actually to be ticked. I mean, if, if you ask, for example, Trumpists, who are the corrupt elites that are destroying the country? And they will point fingers at the Democrats and they will point fingers at, at the, you know, the blue elites in, in both coasts that are completely detached from the real from real America and its and, and the backbone of society and has betrayed them and boom, 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 right? What we've heard all these times. So if there isn't a kind of a bedrock of a minimum of mutual recognition and an acceptable level of some core premises to debate, then we we find ourselves in the moment that we are now. <laughs> There are legitimate grievances that are, that are underpinning the rise of populism across all of the countries that we find it. In the US case, for example, you've got sets of elites on both sides of politics who in their own way seem to be detached from reality and at each other's throats. Meanwhile, you've got the personal lived experience of most of the population. There's legitimate grievance around a whole host of depredations. So perhaps let's start by talking about the personal cost of crisis in Venezuela, and then maybe we can compare with what's going on in the United States and then see if there's any resonance in Australia as well. I'm really glad for that question, Ben, because that brings us back, how we're talking about, again, these big historical processes. I mean, brings it back to the experience of the individual, right? I mean, what is really going on from their from their own point of view in their daily lives and the communication between, between the micro and the macro level and anyway, look, I mean, I'll start with a, so on one hand, with respect to the United States, with a, with a personal tale. And I remember I was doing my PhD. I was living in, in South Carolina when the global financial crisis happened, right? And I remember one day we went to a neighborhood that had just been recently built, probably a couple of miles from where I used to live. 
And he had to say all the all the foreclosure and for sale signs in front, like what you see in the movies, but just and this was just right in the middle of all the talking about the GFC. And I thought, how hard life must be for each one of these individuals right now, and how to make sense of, of what's happening prices of real estate, pummel, all these different things that, that we see. But what ended up, what that meant was, of course, extreme grievance for, for people in their daily lives. And particularly, the issue of precarity, which I think is, is, is very important in, in our conversation. The issue of vulnerability, of feeling on edge, that anything can happen at any given time that derails your life. And even if you have a job, and even if you have a paycheck, and even if you have a routine and some sense of, of ontological security based on that routine, you know, as we say in Spanish, el coco can just show up and screw you up. Something can happen. And that sense of precarity is probably what the a better part of the of 20th century politics in the Western established democracies post-Second World War try to address through a variety of mechanisms. And in the States, for at least a portion of its population, several institutions that were devised to prevent people from experiencing extreme suffering began to erode, as we know. And this is, we've read about this the, at the 1980s and the advent of neoliberalism and so forth. But what that means in practice is that you are one sickness away from being broke. You are one major accident from completely derailing your life. And that that's the life that a large number of, not only Americans, but people around the world experience nowadays. So you have this sense of precarity, but on the other hand, the frustration of seeing at the same time the world having more capacities, at least technological and resources than ever to deal with that, to that sense of precarity. And I was a student in, and I come back to the States, when I was a student, I, I actually, end of my PhD, I fell sick and for ended up going to the hospital, getting treatment, and, and I had insurance. I was already working as an academic. And when I saw the bills, and I remember in particular, I had to have an MRI. And the MRI, I saw the bill, and the bill was $1,000. And I said, but I have, but I have insurance. I said, no, 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 that's the excess. I said, how can that be the excess? And then they show me the bill and a single MRI was almost $7,000. I thought, oh, so at that moment, on one hand, I, you know, I, I had a, a, a huge sense of, of fuck you inside, like, no, fuck it. How can this be possible? But, I, but it opened my eyes. It's like, oh, this is, this is what people deal on a daily basis. Anyone can be vulnerable to something happening. But if you make $20,000 a year and there is no way that you can get out of that predicament, with one of these incidents happening, your life's screwed. Oh, by the way, soon thereafter, I began getting phone calls and unsolicited mail from benevolent credit cards with 25, 30% interest rate. So of course, I overextended my, my description of what this precarity might mean on an, on an individual basis. If I felt like that and I'm, you know, I have, was doing a PhD, had gainful employment, had all these uh, different tools for a good livelihood of resources, 
what can a huge percentage of the population there can feel? It really opened my eyes. But that brings me back very briefly to, to experience in Venezuela. Because in Venezuela, I, I grew up as a, I was one of the fortunate, fortunate kids who happened to grow up in, in a, well, first of all, in a loving home and, and so forth, in a loving, huge family and all these things, but also not having to be worried about my three meals a day, or as we say in Venezuela, los tres golpes, the three bumps in the chest that you, that you get a day. We didn't have to worry about that. Or my sense of precarity was very low. What I wasn't aware of was that at the same time, so many people in my own country didn't experience that. And that for them, life was extremely different. And what actually has haunted me all this time ever since, or one of the things that has haunted me is how strong is the ideological or once structure for seeing society that you just can't see how difficult this can be for so many people. That you normalize this, that you see it as completely all oh, this, the, all these problems, this, this is how it is. And of course, that makes you indirectly incapable of immediately understanding what these changes might mean without putting yourself in someone else's position, without saying, hey, hang on, that person is not receiving his three bumps in the chest a day. That's huge. That's not a minor thing. That's not something that would be so. And it's not being recognized. On top of that, their grievance is not even being identified. It's not even that it's legitimate or not. It's not even recognized. Or it's being manipulated, which is probably worse. Anyhow, you, you get the drill from what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you can see where culture war inserts itself here. I've been intrigued by this question. How would you describe the culture war? I mean, I've got my theories about what it is, but in the context of what you've just said, it, it, there's a clear political space for it. Are you able to speak to that? Oh, it's it, that's that's a hard that's a hard question, and and I think because in the end, to me there are there are two levels there, and then there are of course multiple levels, multiple instances. We'll talk, talk about, about all these, but I do see as like a, a substance that those words speak to, channel connected by by, as we said, by grievances and the representation of grievances. And of course, the extent to which one might be willing to compromise or not as a function of outrage. And here's where it becomes tricky. And I feel that it becomes tricky for a number of reasons. One, because sometimes in that process, because of the way, probably how the unfolding process of seeking justice works, quite often there can be the tie between the justice-seeking process and its substance can be severed. That is a problem in on itself, and it's not unique to, to the different questions and issues represented in what we call cultural wars, but also in other things or in other processes. But also another problem, of course, is, is that from an outsider's perspective, the conflict itself sometimes displaces the actual debate about, well, what is normatively desirable here and where, is, where we should actually, where should actually go to. It's either trivialized or uh, falsely built through false equivalences, right? When I think, for example, about the competing grievances that sometimes Trumpism articulate against progress, well, that's where I go. It's like, oh, well, hang on, wait a second. These are competing grievances 
we need to be careful about what each one of the elite groups representing these different grievances and sectors are actually vouching for, because they can end up betraying the actual needs of the groups that they need to, that they that they are uh, trying to represent. And in Trumpism, we see it clearly, but it can happen in the left as well. Edge Cafe. I'm glad you mentioned the global financial crisis and your experience in the US at that time, because in that moment, I was really interested in energy politics and the role that oil prices played in precipitating the banking collapse in the United States and, you know, the flow on effects of the GFC as it radiated around the world. And that makes me also think of politics in Venezuela and how that's been influenced by Venezuela's role as a petrostate. And what kind of role the fluctuations of oil prices play on domestic politics in Venezuela? Well, historically, huge. Because before the advent of oil and the oil industry at the beginning of the 20th century in Venezuela, Venezuela was among the poorest countries in in Latin America and, and probably the poorest country in South America, or certainly one of the poorest. And life was very, very different. You can see it not only in the pictures of those towns and villages, even with Caracas at that, at that time, but also the recollections of even my grandparents, for example. I mean, my grandfather used to tell me all the time, you have no idea how this place was. And of course, growing up in Venezuela, there was always a very strong sense that the well-being that the country had achieved for and, and the changes that the country had experienced were to a large degree tied to the oil business. And then when I was nine years old, eight or nine years old, I remember one of my homeworks was to bring for each of us, my kids at school, was to find and bring a jar with oil to class. And I grew up in a, in Venezuela's largest oil town. So of course, for me, the presence of the oil industry was right there. And I but I'd never really seen oil. And that day, I, I remember my grandfather found for me, and, and I opened it. This stinks. In Venezuela, we call oil the excrement of the devil, the devil's excrement. We refer to, on one hand, to the quality that is certainly that this is excrement just for, for millions of years. But on the other hand, that there was always a catch, like almost a Faustian pact in developing the country on the basis of that industry. The environmental degradation, of course, didn't escape me growing up because particularly with the lake surrounding the area where I live. But also, on the other hand, the challenge for the country from the very beginning was how to turn oil into more sustainable development, into an educated society with better standards of living, but also the capacity to create livelihoods that were that were more sustainable and didn't depend on a single product. From for a really long time in my life, the single most determinant of my livelihood without me noticing was the price of that stinky shit. And that's how we most, in Venezuela for a really long time and still today, you monitor the price of oil as if you were monitoring, I don't know, sports. We kept it on the front page, as it is in other petrol states. The relationship that you end up having with the state is fraught, um, not only for, in the, for common citizens, but also for the elites, because the temptation 
to, as we say in Venezuela, darle el palo a la piñata, which means to use the piñata, bang it and get the money for yourself, it's really strong. So is democracy and an institution building impossible in a country where the temptation is so strong? No, but it's hard. And, and that's uh, certainly one of the factors of what ended up happening down the road. Now, in the case of Venezuela, I think that there was a really strong recognition of the importance of relevance of the price of oil. In, for example, in many other countries where minerals uh, or natural resources have such an impact, sometimes there isn't a recognition of that importance. And I think that's, that's quite worrying because at the same time, we're not mindful necessarily of the environmental impact and the shortcomings. And of course, in Australia, that's certainly the case. Well, on the, the subject of environmental degradation, this week, New Orleans, where you lived for a while, is mopping up after Hurricane Ida, coming on the, the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. I remember watching the, the Spike Lee documentary when the levees broke about Katrina, and it just spoke to all of the kinds of degradation trends for ordinary people that you've spoken to already. In your time in New Orleans, what did you see in relation to the impact of Katrina and vulnerabilities for events like Ida? This is a, a hurricane-prone area. These same kind of stresses will be repeated and repeated more frequently and intensely because of climate change. I'm glad you're asking that question because it's been weighing heavily in my, in my heart and mind in the last couple of days, as I've seen close friends having to take shelter in cities nearby or, or experiencing the of, or their own exasperation and, and during the arrival of Ida and the unfolding of the, of the storm. I've experienced a hurricane a couple of times myself, never a category four. I've been in a category two, almost category three. And damn, those things are scary. It's, just, it's overwhelming. And New Orleans is a city that has been, has had a relationship with catastrophe and, and disaster that has been part of their build and rebuilding. Where building and rebuilding is part of, part of life, so to speak, okay? Because they know that they live in a vulnerable place. Paradoxically, the New Orleans was actually settled in what was considered the safest spot in all that area. But the problem was, as the city expanded and began draining the surrounding land due to unfettered and disorganized capitalist investment and, and development, you ended up having the metropolis that we see today. You know, it's a, a city where more than half of the, of the land is, is below sea level and that is particularly vulnerable in, in times of climate change. I think there is a growing conscience in New Orleans that that is actually the case. And what that means, of course, is having to grapple again with the, with the sense of one hand of, of vulnerability, and, but also to, of, to what building in the longer term means. I think that, I think the city is, is resilient among all the things because it has, it finds its way socially to live on the day, celebrates it, and is able to, to use that sort of spirit of celebration to find ways to move forward with all the problems that it has. But at, the, at a point where the conditions of how this happens and where storms are more frequent, et cetera, that will make it more difficult. And that, of course, is, I think, quite worrying for them. They know, they more than they know, they feel it. 
which is which is different. I think that's what Ida meant for them this weekend. It's not a rational thing. It's a it's an emotional thing. Good siders, of course, the levies held. Some of the, the cities better protected than before. I mean, we know all of these elements. But it's not only New Orleans. The whole area is, we're talking about thousands of square kilometers that are exposed to dramatic changes as these events become more frequent. It's definitely a leading edge of climate change impacts and, and adaptation challenges uh, in the United States. And, and then, without going too far away, several of the islands of that area in the Caribbean are actually can have been pummeled or are actually also vulnerable to any of these major storms. And some of them simply have no resources at all to cope with, with Haiti, for example. And, and of course, places that pop up in the global consciousness and in the media back and forth as a function of a disaster and, oh, look, I mean, what's happening there, and then disappear, and then come back and then disappear. But it's, it's those places that are suffering that will potentially, of course, suffer the most. Yeah, this really resonates with the whole story that we've been covering in this chat about political instability and institutional weakness. Yeah, it's a really bad time to be having instability with the climate change threat rearing its head. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's stay on New Orleans, and but we'll change tack and we'll talk about the study tours that you've been running for several years, taking Latrobe University students to New Orleans and then up the Mississippi to Memphis, I believe. Tell us about the rationale for the tour, the kind of things that you were showing the students and what you what you got out of the experience. Look, I mean, for, for me, traveling, and I know that here I'm preaching to the choir with you, traveling as a student shows you that the world the world is a fantastic place and that the world is a real place as well and it's real in a way that your real might not be. Or is it? Because it also makes you feel about your own reality in a different way. It's transformative for a variety of reasons. And I, I have to say, I absolutely love it, man. I love uh, taking students overseas. I love seeing how, they, how their own experiences end up challenging them, but also transforming the, the, offering avenues or pathways for transforming the way they see the world. And New Orleans, Mississippi, and Memphis are a phenomenal place to these ends because it's not only an area where, where you are exposed to the sort of the social and political dimensions of changing a, or, or of political and civic strife and challenges, uh, where life is hard, as we know it in many of these places. It's not only that you are exposed to it, but you can also see that it's a very nuanced and complicated story because within that harshness and within those conditions, wonderful things that have marveled the world have emerged. And I think that that's what the, what the study tour seeks to accomplish there. And we don't do it in a linear way. We do it that all that is linear there is the trip between New Orleans and Memphis. But other than that, is immersing yourself in a world where all the senses will be challenged, where there will be beauty around, shockingly good food, stunning places and, and experiences. Uh, but at the same time, the shocking reality of life as it was and as it, as it is. And of course, great, great music. I've heard jazz and blues described as the gift of suffering. 
Uh, yeah, the best music comes from marginalised groups because they're on the periphery and that edge between the mainstream normal culture, if you like, and dispossessed communities or marginalised communities, that's a place of great creativity and productivity. And it's no coincidence that all the best music comes from comes from the edge. It's, it's actually phenomenal, Ben. And one of the, and, and again, it's, it's a paradox that, for example, in a city, and it's not only New Orleans, I mean, certainly the other places in the area, but New Orleans is, is a particularly good example of that, uh, where on one hand you have all these features that describe the other southern cities, you know, abject levels of poverty and discrimination, open discrimination against African-Americans and the, all these different elements. Yet at the same time, all these channels of communication that exist across society, across its different levels and across its different ethnic groups and culture and subcultures that are anchored in cultural experiences. All because we all love our rice and beans on Monday. All because we all love when, when Mardi Gras is not that big fiesta that people see now, it's in the streets and we all dance in the streets and that day, we all go to celebrate the parades and we all play like children with our children, jumping to try to get little things thrown from the from the floats. In that sense, and, and that's very powerful. It's, as you say, it's a unique environment precisely for this kind of creative, of creative endeavors. And where it is too, and, and the history of where it is. So being a junction point at the end of the Mississippi River, which is like the pre-industrial freeway or highway that's linking all of the continent, you know, a vast part of the, the North American hinterland with the world. There's nowhere like it really, is there, in terms of a, a junction point for the meeting of all these influences. It's, and, and, and it's interesting as we're talking about this, how this social dimension to it is directly connected to the environment and to the place where it is located. Because in the end, it's a city at a river and it's a city at the sea. And it's a city at the same time, it's, it's a coastal city, but it's the it's the last bastion of land before you hit the sea. So it's, it's, it's this juncture, right? And, and in terms of the unique, uh, when, when you think about a city made on, built on sediment, uh, because that's pretty much how it was built. And those, in this area is made of sediment brought by the, <laughs> by, by the river. I one day, and I probably the most transformative moment I had in my last tour with the students was on a canoe trip that we do at the in the Mississippi. But when we are up in when we are up in Mississippi, so right between Mississippi and Arkansas, and we hired this guy who's an amazing, uh, amazing guy, uh, has a kind of operation to take people on canoes uh, safely on the river. And at some point, you now we're in the river. River is huge. And the tour guide points in the direction of down there and says, you know, if, if you keep floating and you keep rowing, that's New Orleans this many kilometers away. And then he said, and think about all the soil and all everything that the river is bringing with it. And at that moment, I realized, oh my God, is that this, that land is a precarious miracle. <laughs> it sits in this place that it changes and shapes and forms because there is this just this huge amount of water just flowing and um, bringing all this debris and, and soil. And, and I just hadn't, I lived there for three years and I hadn't thought about it until that day. Like, oh my God, 
<laughs> but but yes, it, it is a it is an amazing place in that regard. Seeing a Google satellite map of the Mississippi Delta really illustrates you know how sediments shape the geography of that landscape. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. So we're now in the COVID era and international travel is really difficult now. It's really put a it's put a pause on all of these intercultural, interpersonal interactions. What does it look like post-COVID? And are there any dangers in not being able to have these kinds of international or cross-cultural exchanges, particularly with the kind of populist challenges that we're seeing? Look, I mean, it's it's interesting, Ben, because I had been thinking about that. I had been thinking on one hand, there are the, the risks and dangers that this will be more difficult. On one hand, because of course of the uh, health-related challenges to ensure that the trip can be done safely and, and so forth. But in connection to it with the bureaucratic challenges that it will involve. And we are already seeing how this, how this is emerging, right? I mean, the, the needs for vaccine passports and, and particular, and I imagine particular levels of insurance. I mean, the, all of this will make prospects of short-term study tours challenging. I don't think impossible, but they will make them very challenging. And as you mentioned, I mean, the political life is not going to get any, any easier in the years to come. Well, we know that. How hard it will be, it's a function of how long this goes on for and, and so forth. That's the other part. So there is that question of how and to what degree and in what way we're gonna we're gonna make it work and, and where and with how what many people and so forth. So that's one angle, and I agree with you. That's that's a that's a concern. I do think that in the meantime, for example, the um what I tell colleagues who who like and work in this area is look, there are ways in which we can think of trips that are, for example, closer to Melbourne within Australia, but also neighboring neighboring countries that accomplish some of the transformative experiences that we that we want for, for our students. And, and that's one way of looking at it, right? I mean, it's thinking, okay. And, and I think that that speaks also to what the institution should recognize and try to do with academics is, okay, well, let's support you to think about ways in which we can accomplish trips that also get students to experience. And to have this, to, to still enjoy these experiences in their degrees and, and so forth. But on the other hand, there is the growing uh, recognition that some of those trips as well need to be justified vis-a-vis -vis the environmental impact. And that's a big change that's happening in the international mobility world. And I think that's very important as well and will be even more important. And it's not only in terms of the of the environment itself, but also local communities and how not to be tourists only, but to be good partners with um, this community. So, so there is that. That's I feel is, is there is that side of the debate that I think is very important. But the what I was going to say, the other aspect is of course the online dimension, and the online dimension. Well, our instinctive reaction is, oh, we're all tired of Zoom. Well, certainly this has been a huge strain, but for other reasons because. Zooming on itself has ended up proving to be a very valuable tool in many other ways. And the potential, for example, for introducing the world to our students in a different way through online international programs is there. Now, of course, we live overworked and over, overburdened with all sorts of things right now. And, but the opportunities will be there to think about engaging through the online international place and engaging perhaps with colleagues and with partners and with civil society groups, institutions and so forth, and create those bridges for our students. And I think that that, will, that can have a very powerful impact 
Earlier in the year, you wrote a really moving op-ed called Teaching in Times of Ongoing Catastrophe, a tale from Melbourne. And you really spoke to this emergency mode that everyone who's a teacher, whether it's in higher education or in the, the secondary or primary education sectors, has been feeling about just treading water during the pandemic of trying to adjust to teaching in a completely different way and what that's meant for our, our professional work and our lives, just our existential feeling of where we're at in the world. Uh, so please tell me more about that because I thought this was a fantastic piece. That piece came out of a, of a need that, that I had been having on recognizing my own chest for several months to talk about how I felt with respect to, and how I felt and how I felt also my colleagues felt. Uh, generally speaking, how we feel in, in this moment where uh, the usual protocols and structures for how we do things and routines are not there and everyone's struggling and we are struggling, but our students are struggling as well. And, and how best to position ourselves without getting lost in the process too. What should be expected from us uh, or what should be reasonable and how to have self-care in that process as well. I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen it as, as well, we've talked about it uh, before, how we have had many students coming to us in different shapes and forms for, if, if not assistance, you, you read between the lines and you can see that they are struggling. And how hard it must be, I mean, for, if we have something in common, most of us is that we had, one of the things that made us academics is that we like uni when we were at uni, or, 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 or at least we had a, an important experience, many of us. For me, my uni time when I was 18, 20, oh man, it was so important. I, I'm still benefiting from that experience 25 years ago. And to think that you can't be setting your foot on campus, and it's been 18 months on a regular basis, it must be incredibly hard for, for many of our students. So that, to me, has that element of, well, it's at least an acknowledgement of how we're all sharing this space that is scary, that is hard, but where at the same time we have no option or perhaps the best option is to recognize, embrace that moment and, and, and try to hold ourselves and reach out and, and help as we can or as much as we can, at least from that premise, from a premise of, of empathy and compassion. And of course, when you wrote this, it was earlier this year and you were looking back on the second lockdown in Melbourne from a place of relative openness. So Melbourne and, and Victoria and Australia, you know, this is pre-Delta variant. Life was semi-normal at that point. Of course, now we're back in lockdown, the Delta variant's taking hold and we're looking as far away from getting back to any sense of normality as we have over the last two years. Well, how you felt in writing the article, has that evolved or changed from when you published this? I think, I think it has. I think it has to some degree. I think we're still in the process of, there hasn't been until recently a recognition, collective, but most importantly institutional and from our leaders. Uh, and, and I think I, I do point fingers at, at our leadership here and particularly political leadership, that there is so much that needs to be managed, but that there is an element of not only volatility, but also of unpredictability in everything that's happening, that it's global, that we can't remove ourselves from those logics because we, we, can, we can manage, we can delay, we can control, we can risk manage. But at the same time, the, the, this is a huge 
huge event that again goes beyond what we can either in any of us individually can encompass or do. And I think that for that, that requires humility <laughs> that, that we don't, our leadership, unfortunately, doesn't really have. And our willingness to acknowledge that in order to seek the well-being for the vast majority of society, we will need to do, as we've done with lockdowns and so forth, well, we will continue to go above and beyond our in instinctive need for let's get back to things as they were, or we need to keep the economy growing at all costs, or we need to keep go back to our rituals because we're suffering. That's nonsense. Suffering will be translated into other things. And I think it's a, it's a false premise to start with. More than promises or, or plans, which I think are important, I feel that that sense of, of humility and recognition is, has been missing. And with it, the recognition as well of the hardship that many people have also involved during this process, including Australians who haven't been able to come back, uh, people who've been here, for example, who've been impacted by the pandemic or, by, or even by the lockdowns themselves. Whether we're going to have the capacity to actually come together and, and recognize and embrace that premise, I'm not sure. I think we're up to a rough patch in the next few months, most likely. On the other hand, I can tell you that there are many positive aspects of, of the response where in more than once you've seen the best of our immediate friends and colleagues, but also people emerging. And, and that's been humbling and, and a really beautiful and moving thing to see. Yeah, that's really good medicine for the moment, I think. COVID's going to bring out the worst in us and it's going to bring out the best in us. And if yes. we can concentrate on, on the best, then that'll help us through the moment. Raul, thank you so much for coming to chat at the Edge Dwellers Cafe. This has been a fantastic discussion. I really ben, appreciate it. Ben, thank you so much for the invitation. I've really enjoyed it. The Edge Dwellers Cafe. Seriously, you'll find few more engaging conversationists than Raul Sanchez Uibari. And what a way to end our conversation talking about humility in the face of extraordinary change. Such important medicine for this moment where disorientation is the order of the day and the definition of normal is being completely rewritten. The show notes is where you can find contact details for Raul and to check out his work, along with links to some of the other articles we mentioned in our discussion. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, please click the like and subscribe buttons on whatever platform you're listening on. And as I mentioned earlier, you can also support the podcast financially with a one-off PayPal contribution or by subscribing as an Edge Dwellers Cafe member on Patreon. Till next time, this is Ben Habib signing off from the Edge Dwellers Cafe. Stay safe and much love. <laughs>